And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Eufy is sponsoring today's video. They reached out to me. I tested out their video lock. It is a game changer. I'm going to paint a picture for you for why I'm so excited to work with them. So you're getting home. Your arms are loaded with groceries or packages or boxes or everything. And your keys are in your pocket. This drives me nuts. This happens all the time. I upgraded to the Eufy video lock. Fingerprint tap i'm inside and honestly i also feel way safer it's got this awesome built-in camera so whether it's a package delivery or late night uber order i see exactly who's there right from my phone there are no more mystery knocks and the best part this thing was such a breeze to set up there's no wires there's no drilling uh there's also no monthly subscription fees so if you are done fumbling with your keys because i definitely am search for eufy video lock or head over to eufyofficial.com video lock your front door, your sanity. Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. The HubSpot Podcast Network has other great podcasts you should go check out, like Being Boss, hosted by Emily Thompson. Now, with the holidays just around the corner, you're probably thinking, what's next for you in the new year? What other shows are you going to listen to to level yourself up? Well, on the Success Story podcast, I interview a lot of entrepreneurs, and I usually dive deep into the creative aspects of building a business. So if you are a creative, a creative business owner, or you're thinking about eventually becoming one, which at some point everybody kind of has to be because you have to be a little bit creative in how you build a business, how you market a business, and how you sell your product, all of that does require some creativity, but also for people that are hyper-focused on the creative niche. You may be interested in Being Boss, hosted by Emily Thompson. Being Boss is an exploration of not only what it means, but what it takes to be a boss as a creative business owner. If you are into some of the following topics, you're gonna love this show. Project management and building systems for creatives, freelancers, or side hustlers, opening a retail store, rituals that inspire and evoke creativity, and taking time off as a business owner to focus on yourself, your creativity, and upskilling, you need to listen to Being Boss. They cover all these topics and more. You can listen to Being Boss on any of your favorite podcasting platforms or at hubspot.com slash podcast network. Today, my guest is Vivek Ramaswamy. Vivek is a successful entrepreneur who's founded multiple successful enterprises and companies. He's a first-generation American. He's the founder and executive chairman of Royvent Sciences, a new type of biopharmaceutical company that's focused on the application of technology to drug development. He founded Royvent in 2014 and led the largest biotech IPOs of 2015 and 2016, eventually culminating in a successful clinical trials in multiple disease areas that led to 
FDA-approved products. He was featured on the cover of Forbes in 2015 for his work in drug development. In 2020, he merged as a prominent national commentator on stakeholder capitalism, free speech, and woke culture. He's authored numerous articles and op-eds which have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, National Review, Newsweek, and Harvard Business Review. Today, we're going to speak to him about wokeness because he is so outspoken on it after a successful career. He has found that wokeness is truly hurting America. So we speak about wokeness in America today. How do we get here? We spoke about woke corporations, whether or not they're a threat to this company and are they actually doing any good and perhaps how companies can actually do good and how we can actually hold companies accountable. We spoke about cancel culture. We spoke about essentialism. We spoke about stakeholder versus shareholder capitalism. We spoke about the dangers of wokeism and idea fixing. We spoke about ways to truly address inequality. And then we also spoke about the troubling truth surrounding critical race theory. So a lot of hot topics, a lot of controversial topics, but Vivek is a very, uh, first of all, a very successful individual, a very intelligent individual, and really brings a great perspective on some of these items. So I really hope you enjoy. This is Vivek Ramaswamy, serial entrepreneur and national commentator on stakeholder capitalism, free speech, and woke culture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I uh, I was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I don't live too far from there today in, in Columbus, where I'm talking to you from today. My parents were both immigrants. They came to this country in the late 70s, in the case of my dad, and early 80s, in the case of my mom, who joined him. And they didn't come here with much financially. They came here with an education, though, and I think that that really helped them live the first arc of the American dream that allowed me to grow up in a stable family household, get a good education, and they taught us one thing when we were growing up. It was that education was the top priority and no one can take something away from you once you've learned it. They can take something away that you have physically, but they can't take away something that you know. And I think that really created a good foundation for me to you know, go to public schools through eighth grade, went to a Jesuit private high school. I can tell you a small story later if you want about the reason why we made that switch. But, yeah. uh, but in any case, I went to Harvard for college, studied molecular biology, thought I was going to be a scientist ended up getting into the world of biotech investing instead. I did that for seven years. I spent three of those years at the same time, well, keeping my job at Yale Law School, I had this itch at law and political philosophy that I'd never really fully scratched being a scientifically trained person the whole way through. So that was a few productive years I spent from 2010 to 2013 in law school while keeping my job as a portfolio manager at the hedge fund where I was working. Met my wife. She was my next door neighbor. She was in med school at the time. So that was probably the most productive thing that came out of it. But, uh, <laughs> but after I came back to my job full time as an investor, I realized that my learning curve had flattened a little bit. And, and perhaps more importantly, there were some issues that I wanted to address in the inefficiencies of developing medicines in pharma that I couldn't do as a passive investor from the sideline. And so I left my job as an investor. It was a comfortable position to be in, uh, but I decided to leave it anyway in 2014 to start a new kind of company, you referenced it, Royven, that was focused on shortening the time of developing medicines by cutting through a lot of the bureaucracy that Big Pharma had historically uh, relied upon to develop medicines. Company has become, uh, you know, if I may say, still in our early days, but something of a success. I led the company as CEO for seven years. It's a multi-billion dollar enterprise today that's gotten drugs through development, a couple of which have made it through FDA approval. 
And uh, you know, I'm proud of those accomplishments. But earlier this year, I turned my attention from working on biological cancer, shall we say, uh, to working on what I view as, as a major cultural cancer that actually threatens the future of the United States, in my opinion, and, and really threatens to kill that dream, that American dream that I've had the privilege of living. And so I care about that dream. I care about preserving it. I think it means a lot to my kid and, and his generation. And that's part of why I wrote Woke Inc., the book that I'm writing, and part of why I'm focusing on the issues that I'm focusing on with respect to reviving shared American identity over the group, fractious group identity that I think has become quite popular for corporations to be able to push on, on the rest of America. I think it helps corporations make an extra buck, but I think it leaves Americans worse off as citizens in the end. So probably more than you bargained for there in, in my introduction, but uh, that's a bit of my it story. No, I tease it up. It tees it up uh, perfectly. Um, I was reading. I was reading the first chapter of your book, and uh, some of the things that you're working on now and that you're passionate about now, these are things that you discovered way back when you were were at uh, you know working in a hedge fund. Um, sure. Walk me through. Walk me through one of the stories you told. I thought was interesting about uh, initiatives that you were sort of expected to take on as part of this fund and and they didn't really pan out the way that you thought they would and then why that sort of opened your eyes to what what is woke activism versus potentially just virtue signaling for for an organization because that to me it sounded like that was the first eye-opening experience that you had yeah well look there's there's a few there's a few experiences i describe early on in the book i think you know, some of them come from my experience as an investor. I started my job on the eve of the 2008 financial crisis. So I joined the hedge fund where I worked back in 2007. The 08 financial crisis really shook the financial universe and I was at the epicenter of it. And I think a lot of the birth of woke capitalism can trace its roots. The birth of certainly the modern aggressive form of woke capitalism can trace its roots to the post-2008 era. I did an internship at Goldman Sachs. I talked a little bit about that in the first chapter of the book. Yeah which I think was my first exposure to the hypocritical lack of self-reflection and the inauthenticity of this new brand of so-called stakeholder capitalism. That was an introduction I had dating back to 2006. And you know, at, at the end of the day, I've been educated at places like Harvard and Yale along the way. I graduated from Harvard in 07, where I, I feel like I witnessed the birth of woke culture in the universities when Larry Summers, who was president of the university, had to step down for certain comments that he made that were controversial, yes, but I thought were acceptable within the bounds of acceptable debate, whether or not you agreed with what he had to say. And watching the president of Harvard taken down from his position and, and personally serving in the committee, actually, I was the student representative of the committee that selected his successor, and having seen that firsthand, you know, I think just created a lot of experiences early in my adult life from the later years in my time at Harvard to joining a hedge fund, an elite hedge fund at the you know, thick of the 2008 financial crisis, to the internships I'd done at places like Goldman Sachs along the way, to more recently starting a venture-backed company that you know I had to understand a little bit about a world that had expectations for what a young entrepreneur was supposed to do in the contemporary postmodern era as, as it pertains to social issues that I you know, eventually grew fed up with a game that I thought centered on pursuing profit and power by pretending like you care about something other than the pursuit of profit and power. And you know, it's a pretty good gig. If you're somebody who's been in the shoes that I've been in, you get to amuse about the racially impact, 
racially disparate impact of climate change and ski towns, maybe flying in on a private jet. And it's not a bad life, but I, I eventually just grew fed up with the inauthenticity of that game, not because it was hypocritical or not just because it was hypocritical, but because I actually thought it was beginning to pose a threat to the integrity of American democracy itself, because what it did, what this new model of stakeholder capitalism, what we call woke capitalism now, what, what it really does is it concentrates power in the hands of a small group of capitalist elites to determine what's good for the rest of society on issues ranging from environmentalism to climate change, to racial justice, to diversity. It says this small group of people who control power in the marketplace ought to also wield power in American democracy. And to me, that was, that was a rejection of what America is supposed to be all about. Because if America to me is one thing, it is a place where every citizen's voice is weighted equally in the marketplace of ideas in our democracy. Even if in the marketplace of products, more dollars can ultimately vote up the best product to the top, that's okay. That shouldn't be the way that the marketplace of ideas works in a democracy. And to me, that felt like a betrayal of what this country was supposed to be all about. Looks a lot more like old world Europe, where a small group of elites would get in a room, maybe labor elites, mm -hmm. business elites, and church elites would get in a room and decide what's good for the rest of society. Maybe that works for old world Europe, but that's not the essence of what America is supposed to be. And as a first generation American who who was born in this country to parents who came here and voted with their feet to be here because of the ideals that this country represents. To me, I felt a, a real sense of responsibility to, to speak up on behalf of those ideals rather than watch ourselves devolve into this corporatocracy that ultimately resembles an old world European model rather than an American model. How did wokeness get to this point where it started in it started it started with in theory uh, a good you know there was there was good thought behind why we should be sure. woke why we should be more accepting why we should do all of these things to perhaps get rid of some latent ideologies that are not so great that we see in society how has it got to the point where it's almost gone to the other end of the spectrum and now yeah. what you're stating is that it's actually negatively impacting society to a point yeah, look, I, I think that when wokeness was born, it was about challenging the system, about standing up to the system. And agree or not, there's something about that that I respect for somebody who has the courage to stand up to what the prevailing system is. Okay. But today, I think a couple decades later, wokeism is no longer about challenging the system. Wokeism has become the system. And I think that the the untold story of how that took place actually traces back to the 2008 financial crisis when corporations were the bad guys. The old left wanted to take money from the wealthy corporations and redistribute it to poor people. Agree or not, that's what the old left had to say. But there was the beginning of this new woke movement that began to say, actually, the real injustice in society wasn't, impov wasn't poverty per se. It wasn't economic injustice per se. No, it was racial injustice and misogyny and bigotry. And after 08, that actually presented the opportunity of a generation for big business and for Wall Street, because they could go in one fell swoop from being by definition the bad guys in the eyes of the old left to being the good guys if they wielded their corporate power in the right way. And so they started adopting these woke values, applauding diversity and inclusion, 
putting token minorities and women on boards. And as I said earlier, musing about the racially disparate impact of climate change in fancy ski towns. And, and that actually worked out pretty well because corporations were happy to lend not just their money, but their legitimacy to this new woke movement. They were happy to use their market power to effectively propagate these woke values, but they didn't want to do it for free. They had a new expectation that this new left would look the other way when it came to leaving corporate power intact. They recognized that maybe they don't love corporate power, but at least they would leave them alone if they were using corporate power to advance the goals of the new progressive woke left. And that's how this arranged marriage came to be. And so to answer your question about how wokeness went from being about a fringe theory that challenged the system to becoming the dominant system, in my telling of it, certainly in the book, and I, and I believe it to be true, it is when wokeness met capitalism that it truly became unstoppable, that it went from being about challenging the system to becoming the system. And if you trace back to the 2008 version of it or the post-2008 version of it, what I like to say is a bunch of big banks met a bunch of woke millennials. Together, they birthed woke capitalism, and they put Occupy Wall Street up for adoption. You better bet many people. Yeah. So let's take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Truebill. So let me ask you a question. How often have you signed up for a free trial, and then it converted into a paid subscription, and you forgot to cancel it? Or how often have you just not been able to cancel something because the process to cancel that particular you know, monthly service is just horrible and painful, and they make you jump through hoops? Truebill is solving this for you. Truebill is letting you fight back against scammy subscription services. Truebill is a new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions that you don't need, you don't want, or you simply forgot about. On average, people save roughly $720 per year with Truebill. And it's honestly because companies make subscriptions difficult to cancel. Truebill makes it incredibly simple. You just link your accounts to Truebill and they cancel everything unwanted with a single click. And if something doesn't cancel automatically, they actually have a concierge service that will follow up and cancel it for you so that you don't have to. Truebill has over 2 million active users and they saved people over $100 million. I used it myself. I saved about 578 bucks. But that's just because I spent so much time in the past having to go back and cancel. I'm sure if I knew about them two, three years ago, it could have saved me like thousands of dollars by now. So stop letting CEOs and bad businesses get rich off you being unable or just forgetting to cancel. Don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today with Truebill at Truebill.com slash success story. Go right now, Truebill.com slash success story. That's Truebill.com slash S-U-C-C-E-S-S-S-T-O-R-Y. It could save you thousands a year. That's Truebill.com slash success story. Take control of your subscription. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, BetterHelp. If you want to take advantage of a special promo, BetterHelp is offering all Success Story podcast listeners. Go to BetterHelp.com slash Scott Clary. BetterHelp.com slash S-C-O-T-T-C-L-A-R-Y. So what is BetterHelp? BetterHelp is therapy, for lack of a better term. It's the best way to give yourself routine maintenance for your mental and emotional well-being. And the best way to think about therapy is usually through analogies. We always get our cars tuned to prevent bigger issues down the road. We get annual checkups and we go to the gym to maintain physical health so that we don't get out of shape. We want to prevent injury, we want to prevent disease. We do chores regularly so they don't all pile up and have a huge giant mess in your house 
by the end of the week. Going to therapy is like all of the above. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It just means that you're investing in yourself and keeping your mind healthy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy from the comfort of your home. It offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. You communicate the way you feel comfortable. It is so much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start speaking to somebody in under 48 hours. Take care of your mind before any more bad stuff happens. Success Story is sponsored by BetterHelp. You get 10% off if you use this specific URL to sign up for your first session. So go to betterhelp.com slash scottclary, betterhelp.com slash scottclary, and you will get 10% off BetterHelp. Remember what that was. That was what the old left represented. Wokeness represented a new vision that proved convenient for big business. And the funny thing about it is that, you know, the, the woke left and big business, I don't think this is really an arranged marriage of love. It is an arranged marriage, but I don't think it's in a marriage of love. I think it's more like mutual prostitution where each side has secret scorn for the other. And any marriage in which each side has a scorn for the other is not going to end well, but it's a marriage that's working right now as long as each side gets something out of the trade. And Silicon Valley has now copied the same thing, saying they're going to censor content that the far woke left doesn't want to see online. But in return, they expect the new Democratic Party to look the other way when it, when it comes to leaving their monopoly power intact. That's how this arranged marriage is working out right now really well for both sides. But mm -hmm. the net child, the bastard child of that arranged marriage has been the rise of this new woke industrial complex that I think is far more powerful than either big business or big government alone. It's a hybrid, a combination of the two, because each is able to do what the other cannot. And I personally think that's actually the biggest threat to liberty today, not just big government per se, but the, the new birth of this new woke industrial leviathan. I, I want to I want to highlight specific examples because people are listening to this like oh yeah well you know it makes sense and but where can you point to where a company sort of virtue signaled just to placate you know the the masses and one one example you brought out was with with uh, Solomon David Solomon taking companies public that have uh, a woman on their board of directors or or whatnot and that's a great that's a great thing it sounds like you know in theory that that's a great initiative but you brought out a data point that was something along the lines of the fact that most of these organizations already had a woman on the board of directors and it actually didn't really impact any organizations that yeah. were already IPOing. So I, yeah, I mean, Goldman Sachs made a declaration yeah. in 2020 that it would not, from, from the mountaintops of Davos, by the way, that's, Davos tends to be a place where people go to make these <laughs> proclamations, I've, I've learned. Uh, so, so from Davos, he says that Goldman will not take a company public in the United States. By the way, they don't apply these standards in Asia. They, they just kind of look the other way over there. But in the United States, won't take a company public unless it has at least one diverse board member, where they didn't really say what Canada's diverse, but then they kind of said, our focus is on women. Okay. Well, it turns out that in 2019, by the end of 2019, certainly, there wasn't a single one of the 500 companies in the S&P 500 that did not have a woman on their board, let alone one diverse board member. And so they, they ultimately managed to exhibit courage precisely when the thing they were doing lacked any modicum of courage at all. They were just conforming. What I like to say is that's just Goldman Sachs doing what Goldman Sachs does, earning another great risk-adjusted return, taking no downside risk, but getting all the PR benefit, taking an already popular social value and prominently emblazoning the Goldman Sachs logo on the very front of, 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 the, of the social cause. 
but but the list of examples just goes on and on. I mean, it's it's in some sense unfair to pick on Goldman Sachs because basically every major company in corporate America is doing the same thing. And if you're Coca-Cola, it's a lot easier to complain about voting laws in Georgia that make you sound more like a super PAC than a soft drink manufacturer or, or have employee trainings on how to be less white. By the way, that's an actual LinkedIn learning module that they sent out to their employees until they were called out on it. It's a lot easier to do those things than to reckon with the impact of your own products on the nationwide epidemic of diabetes and obesity. By the way, in the very black community that they profess to care so much about, or, or if you're Nike, it's great to criticize slavery 250 years ago. It's a lot harder to give up your reliance on slavery in the present day through your supply chains reaching out in Asia. It's a lot easier to criticize the United States and take, take down the Betsy Ross flag sneaker that they wanted to release in 2019 because Colin Kaepernick thought it was an uh, indicia of racism without saying a peep in China where we see true human rights atrocities today over a million Uyghurs in concentration camps, Nike doesn't say a word. And in fact, John Donahoe, just in the last month, CEO of Nike goes to China and says that we are a company of China and for China. That's his quote, not mine. <laughs> this, is, this is actually how this game is played, is this two-faced behavior in the United States and abroad, supplicating to the CCP, lying prostrate like a lapdog, but that same lapdog bites the United States at every possible turn. And I think that hypocrisy reveals the essence of what's going on. They're doing whatever allows them to make the most money or aggregate the greatest power. In China, it's behaving one way by not criticizing injustice. And nowadays in the woke mo moment in the United States, it's doing the exact opposite, finding injustices to criticize as a way of exhibiting moral superiority. Now, you make a, another statement that this is not just, not just placating masses, but also detrimental to uh, traditional American ideology potentially you said like you know pursuing the american dream and having opportunities and and all these things that are you know they, they are so congruent with what americans hold so true and dear to them now how how is this going to potentially negatively impact these traditional american ideologies what wow. what's the I'll, what's the bridge between i'll it? give you i'll give you a simple low-hanging fruit right because some people may disagree on the importance of certain american ideals over others we can get into that but I actually think that, it, that this new trend undermines American solidarity as we know it. Because okay. in a divided politic, body politic like ours, okay, in America, in a healthy democracy where people disagree and debate one another and have fierce disagreements in the sphere of politics, the thing that we need in order to bind ourselves together as one people is other spheres of our lives, apolitical spaces where we can all come together, irrespective of whether we're black or white, irrespective of whether we're Democrat or Republican. To me, the baseball stadiums of America are a perfect example of where people come together for their love of sport, for their love of watching sport. And you don't have to know whether the fan next to you supports your politics or not. You probably don't. And, and that's a beautiful thing about it. The private sector, running a biotech company, one of the beautiful things about it is that you come together because you care about developing medicines for patients who need them, not because you have one view or another on a particular political hot button issue of the day. And now with the spread of this woke capitalist brand, we lose those apolitical spaces. No one can go to a major league baseball game anymore without also implicitly endorsing the major league baseball stand on moving its all-star game from Atlanta to Colorado this year in a flagrant display of virtue signaling without actually probably even having read the voting statute that they were protesting in Georgia, going to a state that actually doesn't have 
dramatically different voting laws in the first place, but did it just because it was an opportunity to signal virtue. Maybe that benefits the MLB in the short run. Maybe it doesn't. We can debate that. But it hangs America out to dry because it, again, eviscerates one more space that could have brought us together in a divided moment that we have now lost to. As biotech companies go woke, the same thing happens where whether you're on the left or the right, black or white, you could come together, say, I want to pursue the development of medicines for patients who need them. But now the Biotech Industry Association, Bio, the lobby group that represents the biotech companies, says that it encourages companies to consider disinvestment in states that pass laws like the ones in Georgia. And that effectively have forces people to signal what political tribe they're in, where I personally think that the thing we need to do isn't to force capitalism and democracy to share the same bed. What we actually need is to keep them apart from one another in order to preserve the integrity of each. And I think that if we continue to force capitalism to mix with democracy, we will be left with neither. And in my mind, those are the two parents of America, capitalism mm -hmm. and democracy, both in 1776, the year of the Declaration of Independence and the year of the wealth of nations, individualism, unity, all in one. That is what America is at its best. And, and we need both of those parents of America. Sometimes those parents may run roughshod over the other. And sometimes in order to save the baby, you actually need to keep the parents apart. This may be one of those cases where America needs to do the same thing. You know, when you, when you break it down like that, it actually, and you made a reference to, uh, you know, Europe hundreds of years ago when there was issues separating church and state. And now this is, it seems to be, you know, history repeats, uh, history repeats itself. Now we're seeing the issue of separating capitalism and state. Yes. And, and I talk about this a lot in my book. America is all about, and I trace this back to the church and state separation. I'm glad you brought it up. It's all about keeping the different institutions that undergird America intact. And sometimes in order to keep them intact, you have to keep them apart from one another. And to me, that is what true American pluralism is actually about. The plurality of institutions that undergird America without saying that all of them have to be doing the same thing, which is what stakeholder capitalism or woke capitalism demands. You don't want the church and the state doing the same thing because you'll have neither a church nor a state left. Similarly, you don't want capitalism doing the same thing as our political democracy or, or either one will actually fail in what it is, its essential purpose is supposed to deliver. Same thing with respect to universities or museums or schools or sports. Let each one stand for its own unique purpose, but by mixing their purposes with one another, we're left with one amalgamated gamish that is an unrecognizable and flawed form of each, leaving us with the benefits of none of those things. And to me, American pluralism includes the integrity of our museums, our sports, our educational institutions, our politics, our private sector, our economy. Let each of those things flourish in their own right. I say the same thing about American identity and, and what American pluralism means at the level of these institutions. I also say the same thing within, too, is, is part of the woke agenda is to say that you are reduced to a white male, and I don't know much about your sexual orientation, but whatever it is, that, th those, are the those are the factors that undergird your identity. And for me, I am a brown man who is a cis straight male. And I think that reducing somebody to those narrow characteristics also defies pluralism, because part of American pluralism is about the plurality of identities within each of us. I'm not just a man. I'm a father. I'm a son. I'm a brother. I'm not just a scientist. I'm an entrepreneur. I've been trained as a lawyer. I started a company. I've been an investor. I'm not any one of those things. I am all of those things at once, and, and so are you, and, and hopefully a good deal more. 
And I think that part of this new woke movement is rejecting that vision of the pluralism within too, to say that we have to reduce ourselves to be one thing, just as each of our institutions in America have to. I just want to take a second to thank the sponsor of today's episode, Nutrafol. Now, I tried Nutrafol because I have some hair now, but I know that in my family, eventually I'll start to lose some hair. And for the longest time, when it came to hair remedies, the options were some sort of surgical or some sort of transplant or natural remedies that didn't really seem to work. So you no longer have to choose between a chemical or a drug or a prescribed fix for hair or some sort of surgery or just no results. Now there is a natural holistic option that actually delivers results for your hair. This is Nutrafol. And Nutrafol does promote hair thickness, hair growth, and whole body wellness. So, of course, genetics are a cause of hair loss. Uh, Nutrafol goes beyond that because there are actually five other causes for hair loss that go beyond genetics. So you have hormones, nutrition, metabolism, environmental factors, and stress. Nutrafol targets all of these five factors. So even if you don't have the genetic predisposition to lose hair, there are, are other things that could cause you to lose hair, Nutrafol is targeting all those, helping with all those. Nutrafol is also clinically proven to improve hair growth and thickness and visible scalp coverage. It has 21 potent ingredients. Of course, these are helping your hair, but they're also supporting better sex drive, better sleep, and less stress. It's been recommended by over 1,500 doctors and in clinical studies and trials, uh, men did show progressive improvement in hair growth and hair thickness in three to six months. So you can grow thicker and healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code success story. This will save you $15 off your first month's supply of Nutrafol. And this is the best offer anywhere. It's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus, there's also free shipping on every single order. So if you want to get $15 off, Get $15 off now on your first order of Nutrafol at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code success story. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. Now, with the year-end fast approaching, HubSpot's CRM is ready to take on challenges of keeping you, your teams, and your customers connected in 2022. With the improved forecasting tool, you get a bird's eye view of your entire pipeline to see what's around the corner. You learn how your quarter's doing, inspect new deals, and also you can use customizable data-driven reports to improve team performance as you grow. And on top of the improved forecasting tools, you also have the option for the custom report builder. And with the custom report builder, you are leveling up from manually entering data. You're letting HubSpot connect smarter, cleaner data into real-time reporting on sales, marketing, deals, and more. Now, if you want to learn more about the improved forecasting tool, if you want to learn more about custom report builders, or if you just want to learn more about HubSpot as a CRM for your business, go to HubSpot.com and learn about how HubSpot CRM can help connect your business in 2022, HubSpot.com. Reduce themselves to the same narrow social agenda-driven purpose, when in fact that belies the essence of, to me, of what pluralism is actually about in this country. And, and all, those, all those other things that encompass a person is what allows you to make those connections to, to exactly. remove. And, and, that's, and when, you, when, you, when you, know, you break somebody down to whatever, uh, white, cis, male, whatnot, that, and that's all they are, well, then that's, that's that tribe. That's over there. That's something that I'm not or that's something that 
you know, I don't really feel aligned with. And that's something that I think is, 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 is definitely hurting when you, when you sort of dive into it. But these conversations, these conversations, the one that, that we're having, the reason why you wrote the book, these conversations don't happen because when they do happen, a, a red flag goes up, right? Stuff yeah, gets exactly. shut down. It's, you know, and even I, I was, I was uh, listening to um, the CEO of, uh, of uh, Snowflake and he was speaking about, he actually went on some news channel about how, you know, he, he hires for, he doesn't hire folks on diversity. He hires based on merit. And that obviously pissed off a lot of people. And, um, but he was trying to be honest. He said, he said, this is what a lot of CEOs in Silicon Valley and, and startup land do, regardless of what you'd like them to do. And I feel like when people say that, or when they try and speak about the reality they shouldn't be victimized. This should start a conversation about what's actually happening. So there's a long winded way of saying, how do we actually, how do we actually hold companies accountable to be better when all they're doing is just virtual signaling they have millions of dollars and billions of dollars behind their, com behind their comms department, behind their marketing department, and they know what to say and they know exactly how to say it. What's the fix for this? Yeah, so I think the fix is, is twofold, right? I think one is, well, I think it's threefold. I think a lot of companies aren't inherently political in the, at the top, but their CEOs just do whatever makes life easiest for them, okay? So if there's going to be one vocal stakeholder group that they need to appease and there's no cost to appeasing them, they do the cost-benefit analysis and say, okay, we'll go woke. Well, I think, that, I think that we, as citizens, as consumers, shouldn't make it so easy for a, a CEO to make that decision. I think that having been a CEO myself, I can tell you, that's the way somebody thinks about a decision. What's the cost and benefit for the business? Okay, well, if the cost of compliance with the woke demand of the day isn't costless anymore, I think that that's one method of, of getting back on track. Another method of getting on, back on track involves actually recognizing some of the legal benefits that corporations enjoy for the pursuit of profit, because we say that that's what we need to do in order to incentivize great people to build great things. Things like limited liability for shareholders, things like the business judgment rule, which prevents an executive or a director from being sued for a business decision, which goes badly in retrospect. That, that's the rules of the game when you expect that companies are making products and providing services for the pursuit of profit. But when we use those corporate benefits to not just make products for profit, but to pursue a social agenda, much, much in the way a political campaign would. Well, political campaigns don't have those benefits. Neither should a company when it's effectively waging the equivalent of a political campaign, but hiding behind the veneer of limited shareholder liability or the business judgment rule, which are favorable treatment that corporations that get in court that ordinary people or ordinary activists or ordinary political figures don't. So I think that we need to roll back the scope of some of those legal protections to make sure that they're only covering the scope of activities they were initially intended to cover. That's something I talk a mm -hmm. lot more about in my book. Smart. Maybe relatively technical, but the, but the effects could be far-reaching. But I think the third answer, Scott, is, is there is no denying that the fact that some of the demand for what companies are doing comes from newly woke consumers. Consumers who say that, I want to find meaning in the products that I buy and to buy them from companies that share my values. And there's no legal fix for that. You know, that's, that's in part the way a free economy works. I think the deeper problem there, though, is a generational cultural problem where you have an entire generation, people my age and your age, maybe, maybe younger than each of us, 
that are so hungry for a purpose, hungry for a cause, hungry for identity, really, that they are going to latch on to the first thing that someone sells them rather than doing the hard work of finding that purpose, that sense of that sense of a cause, that sense of identity from within. And as we have seen patriotism decline over the last decade, as religion, if I'm going to say it, has, has nearly disappeared in our country, we have relocated those religious impulses to the sphere of commercialism, to the sphere of wokeism, to the combination of wokeism and commercialism to say that I'm going to find the meaning in the product that I buy, be it a cup of coffee or be it a brand of shoes rather than recognizing that actually the thing that may fill my moral void isn't going to be the thing that I buy at the store. It might actually have to be something far deeper that teaches me actually to believe in something that's far deeper and possibly far more unifying across Americans and across human beings than the divisive tribal identity politics that might divide us into better consumers. You know, good for market research and for targeting but might leave us worse off as citizens in the end. And I think that's the hardest work we're going to have to do as an American people is reviving the shared sense of identities and causes that bind us as Americans and as human beings and as people rather than the skin-deep social causes and the skin-deep identities that many corporations are willing to sell us to, to meet that superficial demand to make an extra buck, much like a Virginia Slims manufacturer might have targeted insecure teenage girls in the 1990s. Now, Companies are targeting a morally insecure generation as a mm -hmm. way of preying on those insecurities to make a buck. And I think that there's nothing illegal about that, but I think that what we need to do in our culture is revive a shared sense of finding causes and meaning and purpose and identity in things that go beyond the, the things that we take out our pocketbook to buy at the store. One, one other, we're going all in on, on all these topics now, and I just wanted to bring one more up that, I, that you've spoken on before. Where does where does critical race theory intersect with this concept? How does it how does it how does it have any sort of correlation with wokeism and and some of what com companies are doing? Yeah, so so I think it plays a big role. I mean, critical race theory is sort of the intellectual progenitor of the woke movement, which effectively says that you're a prisoner of the color of your skin, that if you're black, you're inherently disadvantaged and oppressed. If you're white, you're inherently privileged and an oppressor, irrespective of your economic upbringing, irrespective of the other factors and features of your life. And that defies what the American dream stands for. The American dream says that irrespective of the color of your skin, no matter who your parents were, where they came from, what language they spoke, you can achieve anything you ever want in this country with hard work, determination, and your own dedication. And to me, that defies what America stands for, but it does so in a dangerous way because America, unlike most countries in human history, isn't a, just a place. It's, it's a vision of what a place could be. It's an idea. And, and the fragility of that idea depends on the way that we describe that idea. And so here's what the, even the well-intended progressive left misses, is that the way we describe America affects the way America actually works. It affects what America actually becomes. It actually affects the way the next generation thinks about our country. And if we describe America as a racist country, we might actually make America a more racist country. And I think that that's what we're beginning to see right now is that the, the pursuit of anti-racism is actually breeding more racism in all directions, anti-white racism, anti-black racism in response. And I think that that fracturation, that, that 
you know, I think division of America to a breaking point, the fractionation of America to a breaking point by the anti-racist theorists that may have, some of them at least may have begun with, with pure intentions, have, have inadvertently done damage that if we don't turn that tide, threatens to become irreversible, especially when then outside powerful forces like companies, like even the Communist Party of China, who's actually using this, I think, to be able to divide America from within and exhibit China's moral superiority on the global stage, when it becomes mixed with powerful self-interested forces, that then becomes unstoppable. And that's we're in the middle of that transformation right now, which is part of why I really feel compelled to step out and call this out, shine sunlight on this issue. That's why I'm writing a book about it, but even more importantly, yeah. deliver some solutions. And and what's what's your solution for uh, you know, it seems like everybody uh, in, in America is now in their own little echo chamber of their own thoughts. And that, I think, is the biggest issue for, for both sides. So how do, you, how do you bridge that gap? How do you, this flywheel echo chamber that's been propagated by COVID and by isolation and people not being able to really, I feel like, communicate properly with each other for the past year and a half, how do you get these conversations reengaged? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that I'm hopeful that the return to normalcy now will provide a tailwind for people to break down all kinds of barriers, physical barriers, yeah. emotional barriers, computer screen barriers, like, yeah. like the one that, yeah. we're, that, we're, that we're putting on display right now, to be able to, to build on a lost solidarity that I think COVID made worse, but it wasn't the origin and the root cause of it. We were already heading in that direction. And, and I'm hopeful that people use this occasion to have conversations in person and, you know, to be able to get together in person with one another, to also break down the other silos between us that originate in a culture of fear that I think we've all suffered mm -hmm. from for the last five years. Fear of expressing yourself for fear of losing your job or your kid getting a bad grade at school or becoming a pariah in your community to instead be able to express what we actually believe to one another, agree or disagree, because I think that democracy depends on the free exchange of ideas. And I think this new culture of fear in this country where, you know, I think according to a recent survey, 60% of Americans in a widespread survey said they were afraid of expressing their true beliefs in public. That included Democrats and Republicans both, by the way. That's not America. It's not the country that my parents came halfway across the world to join. It is not the country that I learned to pledge allegiance to as a kid. And I think reviving that isn't going to come from some politician or from some electoral process. It's going to come from our culture. And so I'm hopeful that the return to normalcy, the eagerness that I see, the eagerness that I have, by the way, myself, but I see in others too, to, to begin to see people who we haven't seen in a long time and meet new ones mm -hmm. in, in, in the flesh in person. Hopefully it can be one of those things that provides a tailwind in a direction that I think we've actually experienced as a headwind for the last year in keeping people apart from one another. Very good. Um, so closing thoughts on, on anything we didn't touch on in the book that you wanted to bring out, because I wanted to do, I always do this, a couple of rapid fire career questions just for people that want to learn from your Yeah, let's do that. Let's wrap with those. Let's wrap with those? Okay, cool. Yeah. And then we'll, we'll, get some, we'll get some links. We'll get all that in the show notes. People go check. Cool. What's the date when the book actually drops? So the book officially hits stores on August 17th. It's available uh -huh. for pre-order now. And so you can yeah. get the first full early chapter of the book, I think, uh, if, if you pre-order it now. So. All right. All right. Let's get into this. You, uh, you know, people want to learn from you. Largest, bi largest biotech IPO of 2015, 2016. Obviously, you've done a lot of impressive stuff over your career. So career, career life lessons, uh, largest challenge over your entire career. What was it? How did you overcome it? Yeah. So hardest challenge in my career, by and away, was the first major drug that we developed was a drug for Alzheimer's disease. 
been a graveyard for drug development and pharma, but that's actually part of what made it all the more important to pursue as a new area for drug development. Developed the drug all the way through phase three and turned over the cards and it was a failure. It was probably the first major failure I'd encountered in my life. And it was a big one. It wasn't a small one. And for me, uh, that, was, that was devastating for a period of time, for sure. It was something that I had, I, I didn't, I knew for sure that there was risk a lot at every step of the way. Of course, there is. It's a drug for Alzheimer's disease. But it felt like I was within striking distance of changing, you know, really changing medical history for the better, doing something for my company that would have permanently created a, a, a behemoth that, you know, eventually we did get drugs to patients, but it was years later before we did. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was pretty devastating for me. And, you know, I think I, I, I learned, I, I relied on, I think, lessons that I had learned a long time ago from my parents, from the conditions in which I had grown up that at the end of the day, hardship really isn't the same thing as victimhood. And, you know, hardship's something you encounter. Victimhood's a choice. And, and the question for you is whether hardship is the kind of thing that you're strengthened by or whether it's the kind of thing that breaks you. And, you know, for me, that was probably the closest I got to it breaking me. But, but at the end of the day, I was able to harness strength from it, both personally and as an organization and the people I worked with. And, and I think today, it's been a long time after, and it, it took a while for me to be able to say this, but I think today I can say that it was something that strengthened me and gave me fortitude that I wouldn't have had if I hadn't been through that experience. But that's the lesson of, of, of how I overcame it. I'd be remiss if I didn't also say something that I wish I had done a better job of along the way. And that's this. I think that you know when you encounter hardship, I think you don't have to deal with it on your own. And as the founder and the CEO of the company, I felt like it rested on my shoulders to to not only strengthen and fortify myself, but to fortify the company too. And I think that one of the things that I might have done better is is actually rely on the people around me. I think they were were ready to be there for me and and we were ready to be there for one another. And, uh, you know, I think think we might have, we might have bounced back even faster if I was willing to if I was willing to rely on the people around me more than I did, and I was operating under the illusion that I had to lead them and, and didn't really you know couldn't show my own weakness in terms of how vulnerable I felt on the back of that failure. And you know if I were to do it again, I think uh, I think I might lean on the people more around me, and that'd be the advice I'd be given to someone else when they encounter hardship too. Is don't make yourself a victim. Victimhood's a choice. Learn from hardship and be hardened by it and be strengthened by it. But you don't, that doesn't mean you have to do it on your own. You can rely on the people around you too. And those two things can go together. Good advice. Um, one person that had a major impact on your life, who was it and what did they teach you? Hmm. So many people have, have impacted my life in a lot of ways. But one who I'm going to have, who maybe I'll call out right now is, is my dad, who reflected the, his ability to succeed in his own right in a way that in a way that he didn't have to have anyone else recognize in order to achieve his own definition of success and so you know he worked over a career at GE uh, he he worked under Jack Welch's tenure which was difficult for if you work in the Evendale Ohio plant of GE where there was a uh, tenure of ruthless layoffs that uh, you know threatened, you know, threatened his job security. He chose to go to night classes, went to law school, did, did, did something that I did as well. I went to law school at the same time as having a day job, but it was under very different and, and much more challenging circumstances with two kids, job security on the line. 
you know, I would often have to go with him to his night classes because my mom had to take care of my brother. And that was actually my first introduction to law. And when I got interested in politics, I would say is tracing those car rides that I would have from my dad on the way back from night class to home and talking about some opinion that Anthony Antonin Scalia had written or whatnot. That was probably made me the only sixth grader who had heard of Antonin Scalia, but but it was my introduction to uh, you know to the world of legal politics. But putting that to one side, you know, for my dad, he he didn't succeed in a way that would make the cover of a magazine or or be highlighted on television as an American success story. He retired after a, a perfectly proud career at GE, but for him, the full complement of his life was raising a family and bringing up two kids who were able to get an education and build a life for themselves to be able to do it on his own terms in ways that weren't designed to impress anyone else along the way. He had a humility about it, but it wasn't a false humility. It was a humility that originated in the fact that he thought there were certain things that were important that he wanted to do, and it wasn't to impress anybody else or, or to show up on a magazine cover in, in his case that... I take a lot of inspiration from because there's a lot of freedom that comes from being liberated from someone else's expectations for you. And my dad definitely doesn't live by anyone else's expectations. And, and I think that's something that gives me inspiration to this day. What would be a book or podcast that you'd recommend people go check out? It's a good podcast uh, called Presidential, put out by the Washington Post that goes through every one of the presidents in, in U.S. history. I'm in the, kind of in the middle of it right now. It's probably why it came to mind. But it was my way of actually, we're, we're debating what history we should be teaching our kids, critical race theory or not, but not talking enough about actually what our actual history was. And so, you know, I've studied U.S. history in high school and in college, but it made me want to go back and learn some of the untold lessons of American history. And, and I've definitely learned a few that caused me to view our own history of how we got to where we are a little differently. So. Check it out. Good. Um, and you, you did touch on this, but if you want to add anything, I always ask a, a, some, a lesson you tell your 20-year-old self, your younger self. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's kind of what I said earlier. You don't have to do it alone. And, and I Good. think that that's different than saying that you need to, you know, that, that you need to view yourself as disadvantaged or weak or whatever. And I think that's something that pervades the next generation right now is we teach people that victimhood is the currency to get ahead. And I'm a big advocate of, of people being able to achieve what they want to on the basis of their own merit, their own dedication and their own hard work. But that, that doesn't mean that you have to do it alone too. And I think those two things go together. That'd be my best advice for somebody who's 20 years old today. What does success mean to you? Hmm. Having fun and being happy doing something that matters. That's success. I love it. Okay. Most importantly, where do people connect with you? Social, website, all that. Yeah. Uh, there's, you know, I recently put up a website ahead of launching the book, VivekRamaswamy.com. Find me there. I, I uh, recently engaged on social media too, Twitter, Facebook. I'm on all of the places as well. So find me on uh, Twitter, Vivek G. Ramaswamy. Find me on Facebook. You can find my website, VivekRamaswamy.com and, and stay in touch. All right. Awesome, man. That was, that was perfect. That's all I got. Awesome. That's all I got. Thanks for having that me. Was a, that was awesome. Thanks for, thanks for being on. I'll, uh, I really I'll send appreciate you all the fun. clips. That's fine. Yeah, Let me know when sure. it goes up. Shoot me an email and, uh, and we'll go from there.
I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information, but Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them 
leave you feeling really accomplished. Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive, and I bet you we've all been there, and maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much indeed for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 